Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Pega Ebrahimi. Pega is the co-founder and managing partner of FPV Ventures, a new venture capital fund as of a year and a half ago that's raised $450 million to back mission-driven founders. She's had a fascinating path to venture, having spent more than 15 years at Morgan Stanley, starting as an investment banker, and eventually becoming the chief information officer of the investment bank. She would go on to be the COO of Global Technology Banking at Morgan Stanley and also the COO of Cisco Collaboration. I look forward to hearing more about her career path, her experience as a new venture investor, and her read on the future of technology. Pega Ibrahimi, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Same. It's great to be here. Well, Pega, I thought we'd begin with your role. You are a co-founder and a managing partner uh, at FPV Ventures, a, a venture fund. And I wonder if you can take a moment and provide a bit of background into it for those who may be less familiar with it. Yeah. Um, FPV is a new venture fund started by myself and Wesley Chan. Um, we've been, um, you know, known each other since our days at MIT, lived in the same dorm together. It's a $450 million early stage focused uh, fund, um, focused on technology and on the life science side, the intersection of technology and life sciences. So that includes AI, ML, as it relates to uh, computational bio companies. Uh, We back mission-driven founders. So we're not specifically focused on a sector, but we we back mission-driven founders who understand the space incredibly well and have unique insight on where that that space is going, and um, and we back those. We back the truck up when we see folks that remind us of Larry and Sergey and Mel and Cliff and Canva and some of the others we've been lucky enough to um, work with throughout our careers. That's great. And and I, you mentioned life sciences. Uh, how did how did that become an area of focus for for the two of you? You know, it, it's um, it's one of those uh, those things. It's in. In a lot of what's happening in life sciences, and I would say not a traditional, hey, just a therapeutic, we found a random compound that does something incredible. It's more as it relates to um, as technologies evolved and uh, everyone talks about generative AI as it relates to, you know, uh, technology and AI assists and all these things. But one of the largest, um, you know, in, in pharmaceuticals, it's billions of dollars that are spent on taking a compound and taking it to clinical trials. And the more insights and data you actually have on which ones are actually going to succeed, um, it's 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 a huge paradigm shift that's happening right now. And I would say in the last, um, it's been going on for a while, but similar to, um, uh, you know, large language models right now, the paradigm shift is happening where certain platforms can become really predictive on how certain things are going to behave. So there's a lot of parallels in um, some of these platform technologies and um, and what they're able to do now. And so that's why we've been spending time with it. Look, Wesley, my business partner, had um, been involved in Recursion and um, Orca Bio and a few others. And so we've had successes in there. And, and um, it's a, it's not um, it's about a quarter of our fund is we spend time there. Interesting. And and what do you, as somebody who backs founders, as opposed to having specific lanes, as you described, um, in some ways, the specific lanes are useful in orienting the conversation. You know, we will speak with you if you're in the lane, we will not if you're not. You, you it sounds like take a more broad approach. And in, in bearing that in mind, what do you what do you present as as a differentiating factor for for those that you'd wish to um, accept your money? How do you? Yeah. How do you so it's look. You know, when the two thousand um in or the. I, you probably remember in 2006, 2007, there's all these VCs that were, let's say, mobile focused. 
So it's a mobile focused VC because that's a trend, right? Or there's an AI focused VC. And for us, um, our edge is really um, Wesley, who's my uh, who who I mentioned, Wesley Chan. He was one of the early product managers uh, at Google, built the Google Ads uh, AdWords system, then good built Google Analytics, and then Google Voice, and was at Google Ventures, one of the early partners there. So it, it, he's the product guy. So founders come to us because they want. But they want someone who's seen the zero to a hundred product and and really yeah. On my side, as an ex CIO, it's really about go to market, especially when it relates to um, software companies and and some others. And when I was COO um, prior at Cisco, I, I ran go to market as well. And it's it's the go to market experience of selling to large companies is different pricing models. It's a lot of those things that I've been helping advise companies both as a buyer of software as well as a seller of software and an advisor of selling software. So it's really those edges. And that's why we look for founders who actually know their space really well. But those two areas are more um, horizontal applicable to figure out, okay, what is, uh, you know, the whole adage of like, let's say on product, the whole adage of, of um, the Ford and Model T. And it was like, if you ask people back then what they wanted, people would say a faster horse driven carriage, whereas what they really needed is the car, right? And so it's um, so it's a lot of a lot of figuring that out as it relates to product and go to market is what we we tend to focus on. You, you as you uh, have begun to allude to, you've you've worked for behemoths prior to this in financial services and technology. At, at what point did the possibility of becoming a, a venture investor make its way onto your radar? Was it a long a long term uh, goal of yours? Was it sort of right person combination? You and Wesley yeah. coming together at the right time? Uh, what what was it? You know, some some of these things, and I'm sure this is going to become its own podcast of what careers were developed because as a result of the the chaos of COVID, right? Um, no, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't um, part of my master plan when I left Mor- uh, MIT to start working at Morgan Stanley. I I knew I loved technology. I always loved technology, but I always focused on more um, uh, other sides of technology. So I was always very close to technology, both as you know, um, when we took Google public all the way up to when I became CIO and was really focused on the digital strategy. So I loved emerging technologies and seeing around the corner, but you can love that and be an operator and love that and actually want to implement it in your business, right? Um, But what ended up happening is um, when I was CIO, I started really getting a, um, as being in a large company, you know, you, you have all these, great technologies you're seeing and you get roadblocks and for right reason, right? Sometimes they're not mature enough for the the business. They're not um, mature enough for the branding risk it's going to take if it doesn't go well, all these things, right? And so sitting in a large company, I always spent time with VCs and wanted to spend time with younger company just to get my juices flowing of being excited about technology, even if I couldn't implement it in my business, right? And so that's kind of where it all started, which me loving to spend time with um, early stage founders. And I would say that kind of kernel that ended up happening is over my career when I then became from CIO to CEO of tech banking, and then was at Cisco as CEO. I always spent a, a, um, a certain percentage of my time where it didn't have to do with my day to day and just spending time with being helpful to founders, not being a formal advisor, being an informal advisor, uh, guiding them, whether it was connecting them to the right people, all those things. And for me, I was just doing it because I really enjoyed it. And then when the pandemic hit, 
Um, look, I was going to go from a behemoth and I wanted to be an operator, I thought, for um, for life uh, or until I was going to be working. I loved operating. I loved having teams um, and, and executing. And so when the pandemic happened, I um, took a pause. I was going to become a CEO, likely, of a scaling company because that's what I did a lot of. Built, t- took stuff that already had product market fit and figure out how to scale them. And that's what I was going to do. And then when the pandemic hit, Wesley actually was like, Pego, why don't you uh, why don't you just take a break? You haven't had a day off since you started after MIT. I literally had not even a day break between any roles I've had, um, at, at least on payroll per se. I've obviously taken up plenty of vacations. Um, and so so what he said is just take some time. And I realized, especially because I couldn't meet the teams, I was like, look, I don't want to make a decision about being a CEO or being an operator in a company uh, that I haven't met the full team, right? And so like all of us, we thought, oh, COVID's going to be this three-month kind of uh, pause and then things were going to get started. Obviously, it ended up being a lot longer. And now it feels like uh, um, forever ago um, when it all started. But in that three months, I had this luxury of b- having been a CIO and having been a CEO at Morgan Stanley and, and Cisco of having this incredible network. Everyone from, you know, uh, Eric Yuan at Zoom to d- different different folks in kind of my uh, companies we had taken public, um, startup founders, because I worked with a lot of VCs that I was trying to be helpful with. So this gamut of kind of um, a large public company uh, execs and, and and CIOs and and all these young companies who were navigating these. And I, I was just being helpful to folks. And and then I realized during this time and just keeping in touch with everyone and, 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 and trying to give some insights. And during this t- time, I realized I actually love just being helpful and, 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 and figuring out how to just have an impact on us, on, portfolio of companies versus having it to be mine. And that's kind of when the aha moment of happened, because I always loved, look, uh, I loved VC and emerging companies there, but I didn't think I could be fulfilled being kind of like a grandparent of a way, right? Like, because you've got, instead of executing, you're actually just having a portfolio of companies, you, you try to be helpful where you can, but you can't really run the ship, right? And if you're used to being an operator, that sometimes can be scary because you're like, okay, I know what needs or I think I know what needs to be done. And you kind of want to get to do it. And that's not what happens in VC. And then when I had that experience, I'm like, you know what? I actually love this. I don't, I I loved working with incredible founders. And I it's not like as a as a someone with experience as an operator, you're right all the time either. So you you can have points of view and you can be honest with founders and and they can actually take the things they think are valuable and some and 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 I, I realized I loved it. And it the timing kind of worked out with um with uh Wesley because we'd known each other for a long time. We had worked together. I had been um as also to to your audience that potentially is CIOs. When I was CIO, I was I would be talking and CEO, I would be talking with Wesley a lot because he'd be like, look, I saw this company. They're saying this need is happening. Is it really a need? Is it not a need? Like, do you think it's and I and sometimes I would know the answer and sometimes I would figure out and I would talk to other folks. And and so these kind of relationships also came out because the, I don't this wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't spent time with a lot of VCs so that I could be helpful. And I know exactly what types of questions and what things they were thinking about when they were investing. So then I knew I had kind of the confidence to to also just uh, to, to do it and do it well and also built the relationships to be able to just slot myself in versus having to start relationships now in that space. 
Very interesting. And uh, it's about a year and a half ago that you launched uh, this firm. What, what were the early stages of that in terms of you know identifying investors, first and foremost, of course, to get to the 450 million you referenced, the fund that you put together? Um, what, what, how did you enact this? How did you start this off to, to, yeah. to develop the, the financial lubrication to, to I know. create it the was, firm? Look, when we started fundraising, it was we started fundraising in a few days after Russia invaded um, invaded Ukraine. And Wesley and I looked at each other and we're like, are we, is this like the worst time ever? Should we pause this? And now in hindsight, obviously we went through with it and, and we were lucky enough to raise the fund really quickly considering the environment. Um, uh, but at the time it was like, oh, we're making a mistake. And that's actually a lesson too. You don't know where things are going to go. And sometimes, um, uh, you know, uh, we did get lucky on that was now compared to the last year and a half, probably the best time to raise. Obviously it was easier six months or three months before that. Um, and um, I would say it also puts you in the footing of a lot of the founders, which is fundraising. Look, the past the few years, call it 2020, uh, after like the blip in the, the pandemic and 2021 was easy for founders. Right. And then it became incredibly difficult. And and I, I think it puts you uh, one of the humbling things with raising funds is it puts you in the in the in the same kind of footing of, of some of the founders you're backing. And so um uh, I would say, obviously, our our track records and our experiences had a lot to do with um, the the funding we got, and um, we were really focused on getting mission driven LPs. So we really back mission driven founders, and it was important to us that you know we had um, a vast majority of our money coming from endowments, charities, foundations, and um, and it puts a lot more pressure on you to perform for all these institutions. But um, it was important to us to have that. And, and and both for ourselves and also if you're trying to back some of the best companies that are mission driven, they care what the LP base is. That was important to us. And, and we're lucky enough we could we could do it and we didn't we could uh, raise the 450 from those types of uh, great institutions. And you mentioned that uh, part of your secret sauce in, in your combination uh, there was your role as, as go-to-market uh, lead, if you will, given your past experiences as a chief information officer and a chief operating officer previously. Talk a bit about some of uh, the form that that's taken uh, now in the past year and a half in terms of helping some of the the, the firms that you've invested in with their go-to-market plans. Yeah, it's so in that before I started the fund, I was advising Sneak, Canva, and a few others before I decided to start the fund in, in more um, advisory roles, right? And and um, and I would say it's interesting when you're an operator, um, you know you can add value to certain pieces. And a lot of times as an operator or CIO, um, when I'm a CIO, you think your value add initially is, okay, can I buy their software or not? Um, and it's not, and that's, yes, of course, that's like number one, when you're talking to a CEO of a startup, that's the number one thing, would you buy my software? But the the reality is the value you can add if, you, if you're not the right company to buy the software is insights around product, insights around, this is the type of customer that actually would buy, because having been in large companies, you have all these unique insights that you feel like are just very second nature to you, but to a startup, um, 
they're not because they haven't spent all that time in large companies. So they might be talking to someone in a company and, you know, they're selling a product and they're talking to this part of the company. And it's like, no, that's the total wrong persona. Like that's never going to end up in the right people's hands. And these are just insights, you know, having been in large companies. Right. And so especially for enterprise, I always talk to um, other CIOs where they're like, yeah, I don't know, go to market. And I'll ask some question. I'm like, these are go to markets. Like, you know, go to market quite well, actually, if, 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 you know, if it's more of an infrastructure or like this is this is more an engineering buy versus this is more a product buy versus this is more another and so um i i would say um it's definitely i was surprised at even the level of value you could add even past the 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 knowing how to run go-to-market motions and then the second part is i mean obviously my experience is as um from a cio's perspective was much more about selling to uh, for software enterprise and at C- uh, Cisco uh, it was much more around look um we had channel sales we had direct sales we had market price selling um and and every kind of thing in between and on a global nature so having been in large organizations where it's global it's not just about hey we have a product and we put it on one thing and that if it goes or not it's it, it gives you these um muscles of how to scale um even when something's working and how to um play with the different kind of toolkits you can have. And, and even on partnerships, a lot of times startups will think about partnerships and they'll be like, oh, we partner with this large company. And it feels like, okay, this is going to drive a bunch of revenue. And you haven't been in, a, you know, me having been in large companies, I'm like, the only way it's going to work is if you can incentivize the sellers of this large company. And, and it, like you start thinking about even some of those incentive structures and some of those, where are the plugs with, between those things? So um, those even partnership-wise become hugely valuable if you're thinking about it from those from being having been on the insights. It's also interesting as, as I track at least the timing of this, you you would have started this during the period of great FOMO and enormous valuations and relatively early months in this, there was sort of a venture reset of sorts. And, and I wonder, you know, any any changes in the way in which you have thought about things or means of evaluating the companies that you're looking at as a result of some of this reset that's happened in the past year? Yeah. And when we were raising, look, I've lived through um, two finance, uh, two crises, market crises. It was the tech. Um, I graduated right when the tech um, bubble had burst the first time around. Right. Um, and then um, the financial crisis, I was at Morgan Stanley at the time. And it's always interesting when these crises happen, these dislocations, I would say it's not, it doesn't mean innovation doesn't happen. It means there's, and there's no money. What it means is there is going to be a, there's a flight to quality. What ends up like people just take risk off and they want to go to. And if you look at, you know, some of the best companies that happened, like Salesforce at the time, I remember during the financial crisis, they were somewhat small and they became the one who got access to money and actually could press on the gas. And they ended up becoming a behemoth post the financial crisis, right? Post the kind of and the, the fact that there was less funding there. So you become it almost becomes more high. So if you're if you're the number one or two player, you actually can get more access. So the the big point on investing is the money won't disappear, but you better be the top in that category and you better be really efficient. And you the one thing, you know, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to spend some time with Charlie Munger. The one thing, you know, when these things happen is you when this crisis um, markets happen is 
you don't know how long it might last. And everyone can tell you, oh, this is how long it lasts. And this is where inflation is going. And then nobody knows. I mean, everyone's guessing, right? Because it's a shock. It's it's a shock in the system. And it's not like the variables are exactly the same. And so, um, but what you do know is there's going to be some shock. And at some point, it's going to normalize, but you don't know for how long. So from an investing strategy, it's much more about founders who realize this could last longer, access to capital might be more constrained. How do I run an efficient business that doesn't require access to capital constant? And I can have some of that in my control. And if capital is going to be tighter, um, can I make these dollars last longer? And can I get go to market motions where um, I can scale without needing to pour a ton of money? And it's not it's not look, it's it's not possible in every sector. Like, I mean, I, I mentioned it in the biospace, like even if you're doing great, like you got to pour some money and the same with hardware businesses. So so there's exceptions to the rule. But generally, I would say if you think of even software companies, look, the promise of software in 2006, 2006. 2007, when I was um, running a, a, a lot of the digital stuff, it, is that we thought, oh, everything's going to be cheaper with SaaS, right? Yeah, of course, we don't need the hardware. It's going to be cheaper. And now you fast forward, you know, 15 years. And I would say probably the cost of that stuff has gone uh, up more than whatever hardware cost people had. Um, and there's a proliferation of all the tools and everything else and upkeep for, for so many of those things. And um, But when you look at a lot of software companies, they're actually not cash flow, like they're not really trading on EBITDA, right? Like even public companies. And it's because you have a lot more work to do, even if you're selling software, it's not just the, hey, the cost of running the software and now it scales, it's you have to have customer service, you have to have a lot more um, hands-on with with uh, customers and things like that. So I would say strategy-wise, it's um, can you, can you be a business where you can, um, you know, where there's much more of a pull versus a push so that your go-to-market costs aren't as excessive relative to the revenues you're making? Can you deploy easier? There's a lot of, if, you're, if your products are really cumbersome to deploy and you need to do a lot of hand-holding, that becomes a job. It's, so it's really thinking about some of this stuff as it relates to go-to-market and also just the mindset of the founder, more importantly, is I don't have access to unlimited cash. So I have to run this business. And if I if I am this mission-driven founder who has this 100-year plan, which is the types of founders we look for, you shouldn't care if the market's bad for three, four years. And if it means taking a slightly less valuation or figuring out how to survive so that then you can flourish after the the, the dust is settled and after you know um, uh, the tide's gone and you know who's wearing pants. And at that point, you can get access to capital better than someone else and you're further ahead and you developed your product. So it's, it's that mindset that really matters. And then I would say, look, even compared to when we raised the market, obviously, I think the day we announced that we closed our fund on on um, uh, the inflate, the, the Fed had increased um, uh, the interest rate by its, its largest ever 75 basis points last June, right? Um, and it was almost exactly a year from a year from today, I think, actually. And and when that happened, okay, there was that dislocation and valuation. Then you fast forward to what happened with SVB several months ago, and that is even additional uh, dis additional dislocation. And that is not about, hey, getting money to fund stuff. It's you'd be a lot of businesses depend on facilities also. So working capital facilities. So if you're a credit card, uh, credit business, or if you're um, a financial company where you actually need a balance sheet and things like that, and even uh, software companies where they'll have rolling 
you know, money coming in, but they're, they're spending the money earlier. And so even that the the access to credit is going to get tighter and tighter and regulation is likely going to increase. So even the lens of looking at companies and how efficient they are from needing access to different types of um, capital is, is, I would also say is even more heightened. Very interesting. I appreciate you sharing sharing that uh, that description. I, I wanted to actually I wanted to ask you more about your pathway to the chief information officer role, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah. it's, an, it's an interesting one. You spent uh, more than a decade and a half at Morgan Stanley, and in the early stages of it, you know, you were a, an investment banker. You know, you were an M and A analyst. You uh, were in corporate finance, uh, and then you went to the, the the IT organization, the CIO of global investment uh, banking uh, for Morgan Stanley. What was that pathway like? Oftentimes you see peer, people who would be your peers at that point rising through an IT organization. IT organization, yep. Yeah, so talk wow. a bit about yeah, that pathway if you would. Yeah, and it wasn't planned. And that's part of, I mean, look, I'm not, um, uh, there's CIOs who are highly technical and have spent their their most of their career in more the uh, IT and, and the technology org. Um, I, it, it was a little bit by um, most things in life, you know, um, uh, accident, not fully planned. Um, what happened is if you think about what was happening in 2007, 2008, when I became CIO, there was the, it was all about digital transformation. And we're still talking about it, you know, uh, 15 years later, but it was early innings of, of um, mobile, early innings of, um, uh, of SaaS. And for what, uh, how I ended up there is I was a business user. So I, as a business user, was saying we need more of this. We need more mobile functionality to make ourselves more effective. We need, you know, platform-wise this, that, and the other. As a user, I became very vocal with this stuff. I started putting a technology committee together to give feedback to um, the technology org on here's things we should be doing. Here's applications we should be building. Here's you know um, things we should be pushing on on the mobile to make sure it, when we had salespeople as bankers, as salespeople all traveling, you could actually be much more productive. These productivity. So it was a lot around the productivity of of the business. And so that's that's um, how I ended up parlaying into it as I became just vocal around that stuff, building a committee around what things and things we should be doing. And then when the financial crisis hit, Guess what? We had to do way more with less. And I um, was in a position where I was um, uh, was lucky enough to be asked to give advice on, OK, what things do we really need? What things do we not need? Um, if we have to consolidate, uh, there's a lot of applications that we had built internally. And I um, had been spending time with a lot of emerging technology companies and being like, Maybe we could integrate some of them as vendors instead of building out our own, um, you know, um, our own um, data visualization product. Why don't we partner with like a Tableau that's plugging into the, the, the science? So it's thinking about it because I was spending time with some of the emerging tech companies and um, and the timing of when. Uh, those tech companies were being viable enough to actually work with enterprise. A lot of it was that. Um, and that's how I ended up um, becoming CIO, really um, figuring out how to do more with less, how to figure out how to really push the envelope on um, the things the company didn't naturally feel comfortable with, which is not building things themselves, having someone else help them build stuff, um, and not having more of a, even though you were, you were giving some security exposure from having some mobile uses, how could you safeguard those security things, allow people to still do stuff and still get it past kind of our security architecture reviews and and adapting. So it was this dislocation and it, it, the, the transformations that were happening that caused them to want someone who was 
being a little bit more forward leaning on thinking about stuff and pushing the envelope. And, and I learned a ton. Um, I was lucky enough to have some amazing technology leaders be, be um, um, uh, supporting me during that time and, and built a lot of great relationships with CIOs in, in all these other fortune 500 uh, companies, you know? Um, uh, and so um, I'm, I'm thankful for the learning I had. And hopefully I, I ended up um, helping some of those CIOs thinks about things a little bit differently as well. And you mentioned, of course, you became the COO of Global Technology Banking at Morgan Stanley. You were also the COO of Cisco Collaboration within Cisco. Um, talk a bit about that pathway to a couple of different uh, 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 COO roles within big companies. Uh, how did that come to pass? You know what's, yeah. Um, so when I was, it was actually because of the CIO role. So as a CIO, I was spending a lot of time with emerging companies. I spent a good, even though my day-to-day was running the, the org, the applications, the our, our services, all these different things, I would make it a point to spend time with VCs because I wanted to see what was happening, how the, the, the landscape was sh- shaping, all those things. And what happened is the a banking organization, I ended up overlapping with them a lot, right? Because then they were tr- later banking some of the same companies I was talking to in, in regards to um, their software. And um, I uh, I actually decided to leave Morgan Stanley as CIO and move to the West, as CIO and move to the West Coast. And I moved to the West Coast to work with a lot of these companies and, and figure out what I wanted to do next. And um, uh, Michael Grimes, who was head of, uh, head of all of uh, technology global banking, saw that I had an ability to really work with some of these founders in a differentiated way because of my CIO experience. Um, And so the combination of banking and CIO. So I came on as COO to really think about um, how technology was going to drive a lot of these intersections of healthcare and tech, intersection of financial and tech, intersection of, you know, um, technology and automotive. And if you think about 2013, now everyone talks about fintech and health tech and auto tech and all these things. Um, they weren't the normal day combos, right? It was like technology was happening and then there's technology being used in energy, but there weren't companies born in the middle of the intersection of these things. And that's kind of um, a lot of the things I started noticing and starting to uh, to um, help foster and bring bring about. And that's how I became CEO. As CEO of Morgan Stanley's tech banking, I really tried to figure out how technology was evolving through all these other other industries. Um, and um, and then um, I was uh, spending, I also ran our, VC, built out our VC practice because I realized we should be the thing I was doing as CIO, we should be doing as a, as a large organization regardless. Um, it's not like everybody, it's not like, look, now I'm a VC. It's not like I know everything. You don't know, you don't have necessarily way more insights than it. You just have slightly different insights at a different stage of your seeing companies. So as a, as a VC now, I see companies, let's say talk about generative AI or other things. I see companies at a scale where you see when they're initially starting to go. So you see some data points around um, where people are coalescing, where is money going into? Because if money is going into area, there's going to be much more potentially innovation in that area. It's not for sure, but there's going to be a lot more, um, a lot more things in certain areas when there's and and so you see those things earlier on. So you have some insights on where some of these things are going. So in security, for example, I remember I was seeing a lot of security companies with us that were looking at at things in a certain way. And it was like early days of Zscaler and Octa. And and you see some of those things and the insights those people have that have been really embedded in the industry. And you're like, if this and and you're not sure which pathway is going to happen, is it going to be centralized, decentralized, all these stuff? But you see that there's 
coalition of the people who are very close to the technology having a point of view and you, you start thinking in those ways. And so um, I started spending, uh, bringing out a lot more of what the early stage folks were thinking into our thinking. So it's much more robust. And then um, Cisco was an interesting one. Look, I thought if I was going to leave Morgan Stanley, a big a behemoth, I was going to go to another uh, emerging company because I was spending all this time with fast growing companies. And I always had this bug of, oh, they move so much faster. And uh, I wish I was at a smaller company and you just had an idea and you could go do it instead of getting a bunch of roadblocks. And what ended up happening is one of um, the companies um, I was advising, um, it was an AI ML company when I was CIO, um, they uh, were pivoting their consumer product much more to an enterprise. And I was helping them think through that pivot and they ended up getting four um, Fortune 500 customers really quickly after that pivot. And Cisco bought the company. And when Cisco bought the company, the CEO of that company who um, had trust had trusted me on my insights on enterprise and, and work closely said, look, this is a massive organization uh, or a massive undertaking on the go-to-market that has to really evolve for the collaboration business. You know enterprise really well. Uh, I know you haven't let go to market, but you, can you come and 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 help me think through a lot of stuff? So I got that was the reason I went to the CEO of Cisco was the scope, the the scope of Cisco, um, the the global nature, the number of different types of businesses from hardware to software to uh, the app, uh, application and and AI side and all these other things kind of joined together, and it was an amazing experience to really practice some of that go to market chops where I was giving advice. Now actually doing it um, uh, was. It was uh, really great. And um, I knew I wanted to move into a not so large company after that, I think after two years of that. Um, uh, and they were both incredible organizations and both things to aspire for a lot of these companies to become. Um, but there's also uh, there's there's also benefits of when things are evolving so fast and being at the at the forefront as well. That yeah, makes sense. What what yeah. advice, Pega, would you have for other chief information officers who might wish to follow in your footsteps towards venture? Yeah, I would say the number one um, thing to do is um, sometimes it seems glamorous from the outside is make sure you're spending enough time with people to know what it takes. I think a lot of CIOs um, will have what it takes when it when it comes to components of it. But as a v, if you want to be a VC. Um, Really, to me, to be a successful long-term VC, there's like four important pillars. There's the, um, obviously, let's say raising money. Yeah, you got to be able to raise money, but that's, let's put that to the side, right? Um, it's about really sourcing great founders. So having great founders, either you get access to them or they seek you out. It's about really picking well. So you could see all the amazing, uh, there's probably people that saw Sergey and Larry. And uh, as you've heard from uh, like Canva's podcast, uh, Mel and Cliff at Canva, I mean, they talked to over a hundred investors. People said no, right? So you got to pick, not only seeing the best companies, you got to pick well. And then third, you got to really do great follow through so that you're building this flywheel of founders. Uh, uh, not only are you helping your portfolio companies, but you're building this flywheel of founders who want to recommend people work with you because you've been really helpful to them as they're as they're as they're growing and so it's really those three pillars and if i think of cios um and my experience as a cio it really was valuable to all those three pillars but i would say as a cio thinking about getting here you got to love kind of all three of them um you got to love finding the you got to love 
being in a pot where you're deciding, you don't know, everyone can tell you hindsight, hindsight's 2020, but you have to take a leap when you're picking, you know, um, the company. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta have conviction and, and, and have a formula of how you pick and, and learn from some of the people and have uh, that, um, that resonate with you on it, but you really have to have a formula for yourself and different people. Like I said, we back mission-driven founders. So if the founder's not mission-driven, they might be the best thing, but I, I just, we have different criteria we think about. Um, and then the follow-through, I think it's incredibly valuable. Um, CIOs naturally have that. And if I think of those three pillars, if you're an existing CIO and want to get into this, figure out when you're part of a large organization, um, and I think a lot of times I talk to d- d- for CIOs, COOs, anyone, when you're in large organization, you have an incredible platform. You have an incredible reach. You have um, experts in your organization. You have access externally to, but a lot of times people just get stuck and actually just focus on what they have to do because we're operators and you've got your five things you're focused on that you're you're going to move the needle on, and that's where you spend you know ninety nine percent of your time, right? And then one, uh, and so um, I would encourage as much as it's difficult to definitely be external facing. And I see it now more than ever with CIOs where they're even becoming more parts of the business. So they're involved in customer conversations, especially if you're a software uh, at a software company and you're actually, your buyers are also, uh, your your users or uh, buyers of software are also other co-CIOs, right? Um, it's building that network and those relationships um, because when you leave and you become a VC, you that's not when you start building those relationships you basically reap the rewards of all the relationships you've had and i would just encourage people to be external external facing um not just because it's useful for them but it's actually useful for the organization um some of the best um you know things i did at as when i was cio at morgan stanley is spend a lot of time getting insights from internal but also spending time with pa- people in both other industries and similar industries on how they were tackling things. And so um, don't think of it as, as being self uh, selfish uh, and, and be a little bit selfish while you have the platform and, and also spend time with some emerging companies to see if you actually like the working with founders, what type of help you need. And, and a lot of CIOs, you know, stay away from, um, I wouldn't say stay away, but there's always uh, having been one and having experiences. I always talk about it with other CIOs and other. Uh, it's it's like when you work with VCs, a lot of times you feel like you just they just want you to buy their software and introduce you to companies to buy their software. And I would say that might be their incentive, but you should just think about what you want out of the relationship and work with VCs in ways where you know um, you're like you know this isn't going to work for us, but I'm happy to think through what they're thinking and, and, and to set that ground, those ground rules kind of early on. So you don't feel like, Hey, I got to keep disappointing people. Um, and so, uh, or bring people from your team, because also sometimes as a CIO, you have people on your team who are motivated by getting to know people in certain days and even use that as a way of, you know, I, I used to have people on a team try to meet with their, and, and they would love it because they were always internally focused and they would love saying, Hey, I met these five companies. This one's really interesting from this perspective and that perspective. And I would use some of these insights back to some of the VCs to say, Hey, the teams really like this and don't like that. And, and he, they, they think this is interesting. And so I, I think you can do, a lot of win-win with it while you're in the role and it also lets you know if you like it more importantly 
it gives you a way to be like, do I do I like this or is this always annoying for me? Or is it just annoying for me because I keep having to say, no, I can't buy your software. <laughs> you <know? laughs> it's not ready yet. It's not ready yet. That's what I was having to say a lot of when I was CIO. <laughs> I imagine. Uh, Pega, I, as you look to the future, what are some tech trends that particularly intrigue you right now? Where, where, what uh, what's, on, what's on your roadmap as a result of all the conversations that you're immersing yourself in as part of your day job? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Look, um, obviously the rave right now, everyone uh, everyone is talking about it is is Gen AI. I've been spending time in the AI space since my Morgan Stanley days because it, it, look, it's it, what's happened is is the technologies aren't new, just the computing and the data are just at a mature point where you can actually do a lot of the things. The the models in in a lot of they've gotten better, but a lot of it is really the power of compute and the access to data by a lot more people. Um, I would say. That's obviously interesting, but I I would say as an investor, um, related to a little bit on the investing side, as an investor, it's it's obviously a bit overhyped in my opinion um, on some of the areas. But some of the best companies will form out of this wave. It's just that when it, think of when even the internet happened, you had a slew of companies that came around. Um, but it was like the Googles of the world that really took advantage of. Okay, now you have the internet. It wasn't the first wave of companies that did some of the internet it was it was really these new industries that form as a result of this technology being so broad and impacting so many people and i would say what's going to be exciting in the next few years is is what are the new new almost um subsector that come and the same with uber like look you don't think the big the big winners in mobile at the beginning seem to be the gay the 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 you know some of the mov- mobile platform companies and and that's why there was a lot of mobile vcs and small gaming companies but the big winners were the ubers or the airbnbs who took advantage of the fact that mobile existed that allowed for these new industries to really change their paradigm shift because they had access to this 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 type of platform right and and i would say that's see similar things happening with ai where um it's going to be embedded in a lot of every all products um uh and it's going to be i think if you're a product manager and you're not embedding it in your product it it, it you're going to be left behind so it's going to just become table stakes on having to use a lot of it um and the big question is just going to be is the roi there for the amount of money same thing i was saying for go to market it used to be when the you know when money was flowing and everything uh, was great um, people could go raise money and go spend $5 on go to market to earn $1 of revenue for a software company. Right. And that's, that doesn't fly as much now. Right. Um, and the same thing with AI, now you're spending maybe $10 of compute to get maybe 50 cents of revenue. And so it's like it, the ROI has to be there where people think the impact of the AI is, um, enough where I want to be paying for the compute the compute and all the other uh, the pieces of it. And I think that's going to be interesting, especially, I mean, I would, uh, since your audience is a lot of CIOs, it's going to be quite interesting for, for CIOs and um, CPOs of large companies, because I would say this wave compared to any other paradigm wave, let's call it the internet and mobile, large enterprises has have an inherent advantage. Um, because if you think about it, um, and I won't just talk about the data. Everyone will say, oh, yeah, large companies have a ton of data. But the challenge with data for large companies has been to actually get the data to work together. You have like, you know, combinations of multiple companies that you acquire, people, things sitting in different places, different access points. And what's happening now with Jenna AI, which is super interesting, is the middle layer, the ML ops layer of, of 
AI to get going have become gotten so good that it actually gives an edge to enterprises. You, as an enterprise, you don't have to necessarily go hire a hundred people to get something going. You can actually um, do it a lot. And as an enterprise, you have access way more to like cheaper compute. You have, um, it, so I think the window um, is going to be even shorter to adopt a lot of these things within large enterprises themselves. So I think it is going to be hard for some you know, of the, the feature companies is like, there's a lot of features that are being created in gen AI right now in, in to win in this short time frame. They, they do have a head start, but it is going to be much shorter in my opinion than the mobile head, head start. Um, and, and so um, it's an opportunity also for a lot of CIOs and, and, and folks in there is to figure out what pieces make sense to adopt and what pieces make sense to play with right now with some of the earlier stage companies, but very quickly, they're going to have an ability to just do it themselves because it, it has gotten easier. Well, Pega Ebrahimi, thank you so much for a great conversation covering your remarkable role at FPV Ventures, the success so far here in the early days. Congratulations on that. But also the remarkable career path that you've had um, through a couple of different behemoth organizations, roles of, of, of uh, remarkable consequence, and for sharing your wisdom uh, for others who might wish to follow in your footsteps as well. It's been a great conversation. 